0: Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozon, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telesar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva?
1: 2 Kings You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zelwyn Heidi, here today with David Appold, talking about the book of Nahum. As well as God's providence and justice and all kinds of good stuff. So David, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's always a good day to uh to do some ancient Near East kind of conversation, right? <laughs> well, this is kind of your wheelhouse, so I can I, I know the feeling, right? Yeah. Talking about Assyria and Babylon and you could probably go on for days it's it's fascinating
0: stuff I mean it's it's unfamiliar to us by and large the names you know I just read the intro here was from the Rob Shaka, who is the king of Assyria's uh, messenger but uh, fascinating stuff I think
1: oh, absolutely well how are things over
0: in the uh, the Commonwealth yes the Commonwealth of Kentucky is um, I don't know things are kind of up and down as they are throughout the whole <laughs> throughout the Empire these days we've the big thing here right now is, I know that this is supposed to be gratuitous weather posting, but um, now, now we have to mask post a little bit. The big thing in Kentucky, I think it was last week, we had the, um, as most places have now been ordered to wear masks whenever you're out in public. So that whole debate is underway uh, in our glorious Commonwealth.
1: Hmm. Yeah, up up here in North Dakota, things haven't really gotten to that point yet. I know that the Governor has been encouraging it, but we don't have any mandates or anything like that so right right it it, it is what it is, but how's the garden doing actually the garden well, I was late
0: getting my garden in i moved uh, my family moved in the middle of the whole pandemic here, so we moved in April, and that of course meant that my garden went in late, but i have i could eat two, two or three cucumbers every day. <laughs> um, nice. You know how cucumbers are. They're huge. You know, they grow fast and there's almost no, you don't have to really do anything. So I've got cucumbers and the tomatoes are still, typically they'd be in already, but um, I was late getting them in. And so they haven't really done much for me.
1: Sure. Yeah, no, things have been pretty good up here too. I mean, we've had quite a bit of rain recently. No, thanks be to God for that. And my my tomatoes have the of have the unusual problem of being growing very, very well, like, you know, plant wise, but they haven't fruited much. Yeah. So I'm not really sure what to do with them right now, but we'll just we'll just keep pushing forward.
0: Yeah, I've Downward. got I've got some peppers that are starting to uh, green peppers and some like jalapeno uh, habanero kind of stuff that's starting to come in, too. So it'll good. it won't be much this year, but it's a start.
1: Oh, good. Well, oh, good. Well, at any rate. Let's move on into our topic for today, which, of course, is the book of Nahum. And, of course, the first question I think a lot of people are going to ask is, you know, who is this guy? You know, what is the book of Nahum? Where do we start with trying to understand the book?
0: I think there's so little that's known about Nahum himself that it's probably best to start just with the overview of the book. Okay, Mm Zalwin. So um, I mentioned, we've already hinted at this, the, the particular interest of the book of Nahum is the empire of Assyria. And Nahum prophesies the downfall of Assyria, and especially of its capital city, which is familiar to our, I'm sure our listeners are familiar with Nineveh, but probably not because of Nahum, probably more so because of Jonah, right? And Jonah goes to Nineveh and the Ninevites repent, right? The the Ninevites are Assyrians, okay? Nahum is the kind of flip side of that. So Nahum is about how Nineveh is going to fall and be destroyed. And that's actually a cause of uh, great joy because the Assyrians are the, at that time in kind of the mid 7th century uh, BC, the Ninevite, or the, uh, excuse me, the Assyrians are the, you know, they are the empire, the tyrannical
1: force that is at work throughout kind of the whole Middle East there. Well, maybe before we dig into a little bit of Assyria in particular, maybe it's worth uh, discussing the relationship between Jonah and Nahum, because, you know, we th- like you said, we thought ne- Nineveh had repented and become God-fearers. You know, what's changed? How long has it been since the days of Jonah?
0: Yeah, the so the the book of Jonah we did a uh, early on in the the WFS kind of uh, archives if our listeners want to go back and and listen to I remember coming on and and doing a show on Jonah. The one of the questions is always of course the dates for these books and the the minor prophets are they don't say, you know, in whatever year of the reign of this king, so they're a little they're a little difficult to date. But the the typical dating of Jonah is around seven seven fifty seven forty b c okay, so that's still at the time when there are two kingdoms of Israel, you know you have the northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom, but it's right before the northern kingdom is gonna fall. The big date to keep in mind there again, this is I think our our listeners hopefully can have some kind of the key dates, the kingdom of David. Uh, begins around 1000 BC, but the kingdom of Israel in the north falls, it is exiled, in 722 BC. Do do I have my date right there, And I'm pretty sure that's the right date.
1: Yep, I I think you got it. Okay,
0: so Jonah is prophesying towards the very end of the northern kingdom, all right, and he's prophesying to really the enemies of the northern kingdom. So, what most of our people will will know is that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because it's wicked. Mm-hmm. And the wickedness of Nineveh is seen maybe or it's felt by the Israelites because the Assyrian kings are, at that time, they haven't invaded Israel, but they are kind of wreaking havoc through the whole Middle East at that time. And I mean, the the Assyrians... We'll get into this. They're they're known for as being warrior people. I mean, the world was more brutal back then, just by and large. Um, but the Assyrians, especially, are a warrior people. They they make it the common practice to go out every year for battle, and just there's an annual war that the Assyrians are gonna going to go on to expand their empire, and. Jonah goes to their capital city, to Nineveh, and says, you need to repent. And of course they do. So fast forward about 100 years, and you have the, the time for Nahum. So Nahum is the middle of the 600 BCs. Okay, And by now, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, have no sign of, of knowledge of the Lord anymore. And so one of the questions that that we might want to discuss, Zalwin, is (laughs) how widespread was that repentance um, that Jonah proclaimed? We know that the whole city goes into fasting, but it doesn't seem to have stuck, right? Right. And so a hundred years later, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, are back to just kind of general idolatry. Um, They worship the god Asur, among other gods, Ishtar. Um, Of course, the Asherahs are involved here. And they, by the time of Nahum, they have become the, you know, the dominant force in the Middle East. And they've exiled the Northern Kingdom. They've surrounded Jerusalem and threatened Jerusalem. These are, that's back to the the days of King Hezekiah. And so the people of Israel know the Assyrians as this kind of terrifying empire, this terrifying force that has wreaked all kinds of havoc in the Middle East.
1: Well, you mentioned the question about you know repentance and Assyria's serious repentance. I think it's interesting that within the the scriptures, at least, the idea that one generation would fear the Lord and then the following generation would not fear Him is actually a pretty common theme. I mean, you just look yeah. at the Book of Judges, for example. So I don't. I guess personally, I don't think there's any reason to think that the generation of Jonah at Nineveh. I don't think that their repentance was insincere. Maybe you want to, you know, debate me on that. But at the very least, whatever knowledge that they had of the Lord at that time was not passed on to the following generation. And I mean, how often do we see that even in our own day? You know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. No, I I think their repentance is genuine. I mean, I think you can see that in that the Lord doesn't overturn them. Right, so there there must have been sincere repentance there, but yeah, I think that's a good point to make. That just because one generation repents and turns to the Lord, that's no guarantee that the next generation is going to. And especially when uh, you don't have the establishment of true worship, right? So Jonah Jonah is uh, what an itinerant preacher, and (laughs) the the next where would they have heard of the Lord? after Jonah left Nineveh, they didn't raise up, he didn't raise up, you know, prophets and the sons of the prophets in his place. It was just kind of a one-time thing that quickly turned back into idolatry.
1: Well, no, that's, that's an excellent point too. And it just goes to show the importance of preaching and the importance of, you know, well, just say church attendance, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if, right. you, if you want to take it in, in that kind of a direction, because, you know, if, if you're not, if you're not hearing the word regularly. I mean, it, yes, your repentance may be genuine, but you're putting yourself into a dangerous position, or if nothing else, you're putting your children into an especially dangerous position, because how will they come to know the Lord? Right. Absolutely. Right. So there's there's another great connection between
0: Nahum and Jonah. Not only are they both concerned with Assyria and the Assyrians, but they both end just kind of literarily, they both end, both of these books end with a question, right? And so mm-hmm. there's there's kind of just a neat connection there. Jonah ends by God asking Jonah, are not the, the cattle mine as well? Or is it, how does it go? Are not there many cows in <laughs> right. And should Nineveh I too? not
1: have mercy on yeah. Nineveh, you know, yeah. where where all these people don't know the right from the left and also much cattle? Right. And then at the
0: end of Nahum, it ends also with a question. But there the question is, who will weep for Nineveh? And the implied answer is no one. Everyone is rejoicing because Nineveh is fallen. Or at least Nahum is prophesying this and saying, when you fall, who is going to weep over you? No one Um, because of your because of the wickedness of the Assyrians.
1: Right. Well and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the uh connections between Jonah and Nahum because I think it's interesting to see how um you know Jonah ends with this note of you know even even the enemies of God's church you know should you know God still wants to have mercy on them whereas the the end of Nahum is saying that there will be you know virtually no mercy for them and trying to figure out you know the relationship between those two. But maybe in this in the the rest of this first section here could you tell me something about the Assyrians? You know, why were they so feared? Why were they such a powerhouse? You know, where were they in relationship to Israel? Yeah. You know, just kind of give us some, some sure. general Assyrian posting.
0: Yeah. So when we, when we talk about the Assyrians, the question should come up, well, who, where are they geographically? Um, historically, where do they come from? Um, and all of those are good questions, kind of what we would typically call the isagogical contextual questions. And I guess it depends how far back you want to go, Zelwyn. I mean, you can, <laughs> you know, when you think of Mesopotamia, right, the cradle of life there, um, right. the, the Fertile Crescent area, you've got history that goes way, way back. Even right. if you if you look at this the city of Jerusalem, there's a whole backstory to Jerusalem before David comes along and it becomes you know, what we call Jerusalem. So we don't want to do the whole, we can't do the whole history of Assyria, but just for our purposes, we're talking about the main city is Nineveh, which is on the, it's on the Tigris river, which is North and East of Israel. So North and East of Jerusalem and God's people, the dynasty of Assyria or the Assyrian empire kind of had it had different times where it was more dominant or less dominant, like all of these kingdoms do in the Middle East in that time. But for, for the purposes of scripture in the Bible, Assyria really rises to prominence in about the year 7, 750 BC. And the name of the king that, that might be worth knowing is Tiglath-Pileser III, okay right and so he he is the king who assyria had in its history had different times where it was dominant but it's really when tiglath-pileser comes in he's he sort of reorganizes things and and really makes efficient makes it efficient for assyria to keep control i mean if mm-hmm. you think of of trying to have an empire in ancient times or even in modern times one of the the big problems is how do you govern people who don't want you to be their king? Right. 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 And, and so if you don't have an efficient way for the king to connect with his governors, then your, your empire is always going to be short-lived and you're never really going to be able to to pass on any kind of a, a continued dynasty. So Tiglath-Pileser's big deal is that he is able to increase communication and the connection between the governors and himself in Nineveh and able to keep control. So the, the other thing that the Assyrians are known for is that they're, they're great, especially at siege warfare. Okay. So, um, I know that we've talked about chariots and chariots being kind of the ancient tanks here. Right. Onward fitly. So you also, along with chariots, one of the big deals, one of the big advances in the history of, of military is who is the best at, at laying siege to a city. So you have to be able to build up a siege mound. You have to be able to have battering rams so that you can actually break through the defenses of a city. And the Assyrians specialized in that. Right.
1: Well, and another thing that the Assyrians were especially known for was their practice of dealing with their captive nations, uh, where they would carry off the, the, the people who lived there. This was also part of an Assyrian policy of control. The idea being, if you don't live on the land that you were, you know, born and raised on, you're less likely to want to revolt because, you know, it's not your land. This isn't your home. So as long as you're somewhere else, you'll probably be a little bit more pliable. <laughs> and I mean, it, it worked to a degree. I mean, it, I don't think it worked really well, but at least it was it was efficient, and the assyrian kings were also particularly ruthless in carrying that out so i mean they are a power to be feared yeah the in a worldly sense and right. and you see that
0: in the bible you can see in second uh, kings i believe it's chapter 17 you actually have the description of what the assyrian king does when he conquers israel the northern kingdom and what he does is he deports most of them and he imports five, I I believe it's five different nations, five different people groups into there. And so the result is you have people with different languages, peoples with different religions, peoples with different ancestry, and they all mingle together, they all mix together and they lose their uniqueness or their particularities. And so the merging, the melding together of all these different groups and different nations results in a new nation that is largely pacified at least for a little bit (laughs) right and and then the assyrians are able to exert control over them it's a it's a you're right it's a policy of control to rub off the particularities of a group and just kind of meld them into uh, into one new thing
1: but i thought diversity was our strength
0: david well, I think what you see in, the, in history is that diversity doesn't lead. Well, it's, it makes Assyria strong. It's good for the emperor, right? It's good for the one who is ruling, but it, it usually disintegrates the uh, at the local level.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, also, you see, historically, this is the rise of how we get Samaritans in the New Testament was right. through this policy of moving people around. And I, I mean, really, it really is a pretty shrewd idea. You know, if you take them away from their home, you put them in a group of other people from other nations where they can't really talk to each other. They're less likely to work together and they're more likely to just kind of stay content. Yeah. So, I mean, it, well, it really... <laughs> I think I think
0: it's not that they'd stay content. Right. It, because Assyria and this this is, of course, the, the always the, the difficulty for, for empire not only in the ancient world, but in the modern world too. No one's ever content, but are they actually able to rebel, right? And when you, right. when you are surrounded by strangers and you're in a foreign land, the ability to work together to actually raise
1: a rebellion is severely diminished. Right, right. Well, with that in mind, we need to take our first break. We'll, we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken.
0: The word of the Lord says, get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here with David Apple talking about the book of Nahum. Well, in the previous section, David, we had just got done talking about the Assyrian Empire and the, the fear that it inspired and the reasons why it was so feared during its day. But now looking at the book of Nahum itself, and you know, we'll try to, to parse it out a little bit here and kind of see what the book is doing, we meet a empire, which is doomed to fail. And so I think, you know, can you just kind of take us through the book and kind yeah. of understand what, help us understand what Nahum is doing? Right. So Nahum is, it's brief.
0: It's a short book. It's three chapters long. And um, if you want to just have a, a good general overview, chapter one is about, the. it's Nahum is, is talking about how the Lord, who the Lord is, and um, he presents the Lord. It's um, we'll, we'll go into this in detail a little bit, but I think there's a little bit of a play on the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remember that verse when mm-hmm. um, God proclaims his name to Moses on Mount Sinai? Well, right. Nahum kind of riffs off of that and says, essentially, the Lord, the Lord uh, is a jealous and a, an avenging God, slow to anger and great in power. So (laughs) slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's true for for those who love him. Slow to anger, but also powerful against those uh, who hate him. And you can really see that sometimes we I think we we give the nations around Israel probably more credit. You know, we sort of get the idea that they're neutral. Right. You know, this this comes up. When Whenever you study the book of Exodus, and it seems like God is just being mean to Pharaoh, you know, why didn't he give Pharaoh more of a chance? Well, Pharaoh is not a neutral figure, neither are the Assyrians. So the kings were incredibly prideful and boastful and set themselves against, you know, all of the other gods around them. So chapter one
1: describes the Lord's wrath and anger against his enemies, And maybe maybe before you go on a little bit, I think it's worth talking about right here, something that I think we see in our own day and something that Nahum is a helpful corrective against. You know, we we would probably emphasize with Moses, you know, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You know, he just kind of becomes this warm, cuddly, cozy kind of figure, right? Right. (laughs) Whereas Nahum is saying, yes, it's true. The Lord is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love, but he is also great in power and will by no means clear the guilty. Yes. You know, the Lord in that sense is, is not this cuddly, cozy, you know, someone you're just going to snuggle up to, but God is God. He is, he is going to do what he will do. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, what do you think? I mean, cause yeah. I think so often we, we emphasize God's love and God's mercy at the expense of his power and even his wrath, right? Yeah, they're
0: right. And they're, of course, related. I mean, you can't have God's love without him having a commitment to get rid of evil, right? So right. mercy without justice is kind of empty, or it's it's fleeting, right? right. So maybe, maybe a, a way to, to bring this out is to to remember his holiness, right? So God is mm-hmm. certainly loving, but he is certainly holy too, right? And so when you have all these nations around Israel, one of the questions that often comes up in the Bible is, well, what about the wicked, right? And that could mean those within Israel. I I'm thinking of is it Psalm is it 73 that talks about the wicked prospering? That could that could be a question that arises just within the, even within the people of God, right? That there is, there are sort of the hypocrites who profess to believe, but who live a a totally evil life. And the question is, well, why do they prosper? And those who are actually um, faithful suffer. Um, But you could also take that as on a, on a broader level. And you look around, if you're an Israelite and you say, how come the Assyrians, are, you know, this wicked nation that's full of idolatry, but they are ruling the world. What's, what's Is God going to let that go on forever? Or is he somehow limited in his power? You know, does he, is he only the God of Israel? And so he is actually, you know, in subjection to the Assyrian gods. And so Nahum comes along and is this, it's a great, Um, corrective against that, that says, look, the Lord's providence, the Lord's power is not limited in any way, and he does have his day with the wicked, and the day of judgment does actually put an end to evil.
1: Right. And that's something I think we should talk about at more length here once we kind of get through the overview, that the idea of judgment being actually a source of joy, which I think is, you know, one of the main themes of the book of Nahum, as well as many of the the minor prophets in general. Yeah. But when we're dealing with the question of God's wrath and stuff like this and God's power, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it is a comfort for us in that we can see what God is doing and know that his hand is not shortened. You know, that all of these things that that he's not powerless in the face of evil or that he's not just, you know, kind of. Oh, like he doesn't want to do anything about it. You know, there is a a great joy in knowing that our Lord is great in power and will by no means clear the guilty.
0: Yeah, right? absolutely.
1: So, so Nahum the just kind of
0: as a a side note here, he the whole first section of his book is a poem. It's an acrostic poem, which is I don't know. It's, it's not common in the Old Testament, but there's a a few of these places where you get this. Hebrew acrostic, the poetry, and the first six or seven verses of Nahum is this poem that's all about his power, all about his um, his wrath
1: against the guilty. Uh, Just just for the sake of our listeners, just to be clear, an acrostic poem, of course, is one that where the first letter of each line follows the alphabet. That's what an acrostic is. so And you won't you won't see that in English, uh,
0: not even in the King James um, because it only works in Hebrew but right but it, it does help to see that that Nahum is is delighting in this, right It's not something that he's trying to hide or keep back but he's writing a poem. Of course, inspired by the spirit, but um, this poem that celebrates God's God's power and His might and His His greatness and even uh, His anger against the wicked.
1: Right. I mean, like like it says in uh, chapter one, verse six: Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. Yeah. But I mean, it's just it's just that that image of strength, that image of power. You know, like a a great you know, earthquake breaking up the land, or, you know, like a wind tearing down the trees, yet the Lord is greater than all these. So, I mean, I mean, it is, it is a comfort for us, but, but let's, let's continue on. So, so chapter one is about God's power. Chapter
0: two is really where you get into the, it's a pretty vivid description of the destruction of a city. And so he talks about the chariots coming through the, the streets and there's a, a battle going on. And eventually um, Nineveh falls then in chapter two. And then finally, in chapter three, you get sort of the um, the response, I guess, after mm-hmm. that. And so prophetically, Nahum is setting up this, this pattern. You have the Lord, who is the agent of the destruction of the city. You have chapter two, the actual fall of the city. And then in chapter three, you have, what does this, what is the outcome? What is what is the the result of all this? And it's basically a, a taunt against Nineveh. And so in, in some sense, it's, you might have a hard time seeing this, but it is a response of praise to taunt the enemy, right? Um, right. I don't know, maybe this is too... Mundane of an example, but it's it's once you once you win, you beat your brother in uh, in some kind of a game or something. You you taunt him a little bit, right? And so that's part of how you celebrate um, the victory, and that's really how Chapter Three goes.
1: Sure. Well, and it's I know that Nineveh is not Babylon. You know, Nineveh was not celebrated for its walls, uh, you know, being impregnable or something like that. But there is still Remember with the the sense of dread that that Assyria inspired, sense of power, which they uh, portrayed. I mean, they were seen as being virtually unstoppable. And when Nahum is preaching this word, he's basically doing it right at the height of Assyria's power. It's not going to be for several more decades until they are finally in the decline, and Babylon will conquer them and take them over. Now, this is the point where he's basically saying, like, you know, they're on top of the world. Assyria is great. Everything is, you know, they're they're winning everything. But now Nahum comes along and says, you know, you, you're exalting yourself up to heaven, but you're going to be brought down to the earth. I mean, it, it you have to you have to hear it in that kind of like you know, what is this guy talking about? You know, who is going to stand yeah. before the great armies of Assyria? And yet Nahum says, well, the Lord, you know, who is right. mighty in power. Right. And uh, I mean, it's, it's if if you look
0: back in the, the famous account of the of the Assyrians coming to Jerusalem, ends with the Lord scattering the Assyrians. So this is, it's recorded in a number of places in second Kings, and also in Isaiah, you have, I think it's, almost like copy and paste word for word the description of how Sennacherib who's the Assyrian king has his has his messenger go and taunt Jerusalem and tell right. them you who who do you think you are who are you trusting and you cannot possibly stand up to the king of Assyria and of course then Hezekiah prays to the Lord he speaks with Isaiah and God sends his angel who I think the the number is like 185,000 who are right. killed in one night. So that, but that was, I don't know, 50, 60 years prior to Nahum. And that didn't put an end. It's not like that was the end of the Assyrian armies, right? They continued to uh, exert huge power and control and strike fear in the hearts of, of all of the Middle East. I mean, their empire goes from the Mediterranean Sea, all the way over to the Persian Gulf. They right. are, you know, they're Babylon before Babylon.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, and I mean, Babylon, of course, would be much larger and much stronger, which yep. is why they would conquer Assyria. But yeah, no, the, the this this Assyrian Empire, the Neo-Assyrian Empire is, I mean, it really is the, the great reigning power in its day. And for Nahum to come and say, the city of Nineveh is going to fall. It will be destroyed, of course, by the Babylonians, and that the the people of God will be able to raise up a taunt over that destroyed city when it happens. I mean, it, it, like I say, it, it really is just this image of this enemy whom you fear is going to come to absolutely nothing. You know, they they will be torn down because the Lord is the one who fights our battles for us, which is what Hezekiah understood, and which is why when he trusts in the Lord, the Lord delivers him. Of course, the Lord's purposes in all of this is to discipline his people, which is why Hezekiah's goodness does not, you know, wipe out the judgment altogether, which is why Assyria continues to go. But the point being in all of this that the Lord is the one who is in control of all these things. Yeah, so I think we should talk about God's
0: what, how, how God uses the nations. But let's let's do that after. I want to highlight for for our listeners a couple of the the key passages in Nahum because it's it's not a well known okay. book, but it it has just like we we mentioned before. He he sort of plays with plays. That's probably not. I, I don't mean that in an <laughs> irreverent okay. way, but some really great similarities, but differences between the book of Nahum and his prophesying and some other well-known passages. So let me give you another one here, Zelwyn. If you, if you look at the end of chapter one, mm-hmm. Nahum ends with this, this verse that's almost a direct echo of Isaiah. And we, our listeners will know this verse, uh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's how it goes in Isaiah right? Who says to right. Zion, your God reigns. That's Isaiah. Nahum says it this way. Behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. So it doesn't mention the the beauty of the feet, but it's almost word for word, the same thing. But now instead of announcing your God reigns to Zion, this is what the good news is. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Right. So what's he yeah. saying there? He's saying he's saying the flip side of what Isaiah was saying. It's these are two parts of the same message. The Lord reigns and therefore the king of Assyria doesn't. Right. And so you don't have to live in fear of the king of Assyria coming in and and conquering you because the Lord reigns.
1: Well, and I think the the important thing to see here is that the, the proclamation of peace, the proclamation of good news. Is kind of, I mean, on the one hand, it is good news to the people that you know it's being proclaimed to. You know, your God reigns, or you know, all these things are going to happen because God is doing it. And then on the the other side of it, the kind of the related idea is is the ones who were opposed to this are going to come to nothing. Yeah, it's the necessary consequence, right? How can, and especially,
0: of course, in the (laughs) in the fallen world, the the necessary consequence is that evil must god has to do something to evil he has to conquer it he has to to wipe it out completely and until that happens there's always kind of, and we live in this reality too right that although christ has died and risen and ascended on high and now he's at the right hand of the father we have that's a great comfort to us but there continues to be the question of how long right how long o oh right. lord until you until you reveal
1: what you have accomplished in the person of Christ. Well, and, and with the, the proclamation of the gospel too, I would actually make the argument that we have this same dynamic going on because you have, you know, Jesus being victorious. I mean, he is the one who has forgiven us our sins. He is the one who's brought us to himself, and we give thanks to God for that. But the flip side of that is that evil has come to an end, that the devil is no longer our master, so to speak, you know, we are not, we are no longer under the dominion of sin. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you have this, I mean, it's the same idea that Nahum is presenting here, is that with the proclamation of God's goodness and God's peace also comes the proclamation that, like you say, evil has been destroyed and that it will not have the power over us that it once had. Yeah. So another
0: another good verse to kind of tie in with this is in chapter two, right before he goes through the the vivid description of the destruction of a city. It, it says it this way, uh, chapter two, verse two, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So this is one of the things that is that I think is is kind of interesting to reflect on here. Everything's interesting, right? though. And, um, <laughs> right. But <laughs> The, the Israelites, the, and, and the Jews actually play no part in the destruction of Nineveh. Okay. So, so it, all of this happens far outside of the borders of Israel. They don't send, you know, they're not helping the Babylonians. They're not sending warriors. And yet Nahum is saying here, he's prophesying that somehow in some way, this this foreign war that's happening far away between Babylon and Assyria is actually related to God's people. And so right. you have this this I think it's presented in a way that's maybe not immediately accessible to us but the idea is this that the Lord controls and governs all of history and all of the nations for the good of his people. So you have this in, you know, famously in Romans 8. He works all things for the good of those who love him. That includes even things like, you know, what's happening over in Iraq or in Iran. You know, that's modern day Assyria. These things that seem to have no relation to us here are still being worked for our good.
1: Yeah, and and this is something I think we should delve into, especially in the, the last section as we come up to it here. But the idea that God is... I mean, history is not an accident in that sense. You know, even even the things that seem to have no relationship whatsoever to, you know, God's people, God is actually doing all of those things for a specific purpose, the purposes of which are meant to be for the good of his people. So all of these things, like, like you said, David, all of these things are working together for good for those who love God. And I, I think on the other side of the break here, we should talk about that a little bit more length, as well as just emphasize right now that, you know, there is a comfort in that, yeah. in that even in this foreign war between Babylon and Assyria, there is hope for the people of God because, as Nahum says, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. His people have been oppressed, downtrodden, you know, walked over, but the Lord is basically saying, enough. And I'm going to use Babylon to do that, yeah, so let me l- we'll end
0: here this uh I know we're coming right up on a break, but the final verse is worth reading out loud of the whole prophecy of the whole book um at the end of chapter three this is this is what Nahum says, and he's speaking kind of in the voice, it's the the word of the Lord, right, and he's speaking to uh Assyria and to to Nineveh, so it says this, "There is no easing your hurt, your wound is grievous. all who hear the news about you." clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Okay. So that's, that's, we mentioned this before it ends with this great rhetorical question. And the, what's driven home there is that the defeat of Assyria, like you just said, Zelwin, is no accident, right? It's not just that the Babylonians had superior cavalry or that they had better technology or they were better organized although they probably were all of those things, but the defeat of Assyria is God's judgment on the wickedness of that that nation. And the result of that is praise for those who love what is good, right? For those who love what is holy and righteous, it's actually a joy when evil is, is finished off, when it's brought to an end.
1: Yeah, Nahum's basically saying nobody's going to miss you. I mean, they'll miss you as much as they miss a toothache, right? Yeah, Yeah, sure. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, we need to go to our last break. So we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken.
0: A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: Are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi with David Appold talking about Nahum. So, David, we kind of left off with the overview of the book and everything that was going on there, but now, in in good, I guess you could say good fashion, we need to apply it. You know, how does this how does this apply to our own day? You know, what does this what does the book of Nahum who speaks against Assyria have to say to the Christian? Right. So obviously there is no kingdom of assyria
0: anymore and uh so we we can't just take this as hey isn't it great that god well we don't it would be one thing to say it's a history lesson right that god right. defeated assyria okay good that's wonderful but it was never really it was never really a problem for me <laughs> right right i mean this is this is talking about events that happened how many years ago now Zo it's been twenty five hundred years right right at least so so we we want to see in the um, in the destruction of Assyria there is something of a of a broader message and this connects with with I don't know if you if you like to talk this way Ze or not you can tell me if there's a better word but it connects with the theme of God's the enemies of God's people. So this goes all the way back to Genesis 3, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. So all ever since the fall, there has been enmity, there has been a struggle between um, the sons of God and the sons of of the wicked one. And we experience that in different ways at different times. So in ancient Israel, That was part of the national struggle between Assyria and Israel. Okay. Right. What do we do with that now? We don't have the nation of of America is not the Christian church. So we want to, we would want to see this as, and apply it in this way, I think, that the enemies of the church, the enemies of the church will be defeated, will be destroyed. That the Lord who is slow to anger is also great in power and that he's not limited by by anything except by his own patience. And so he is waiting, he is delaying the day of Christ's return. Um, but when Christ returns, there will be no more evil, there will be no more wickedness. Okay, that would be sort of the ultimate hope, right? But, right. Even, but even within history, he is also the one who is the Lord right now. He is reigning right now. And so he he does bring that sort of, he does bring kind of previews of that final destruction when he puts an end to different kingdoms and different, different evil forces. That actually happens in history. And that's good news, right? That's part of the good news of Christ reigning on the throne. We won't see it complete and universal uh, until he returns in glory, but we do see the defeat of evil as a good thing, don't we? Shouldn't we?
1: <laughs> well, we should, yeah. Well, and, But the, the problem is, is, and I think the, the reason why a lot of Christians struggle with this idea that there is joy in judgment is probably because, you know, we tend to think of, I don't know, we were kind of talking about this during the break, we tend to think of evil as something kind of very general and very vague, you know, and so when we have evil facing us, you know, we kind of Dismiss it away with, oh, you know, we're all evil, so we can't really say anything, or we shouldn't rejoice in the destruction of, of the enemies of the church. But in reality, you know, we're not guilty of every single sin, and there are things which we unjustly suffer. And for that reason, what we are looking for in the midst of all of this is justice an actual divine justice, not, you know, human justice or something like that. Because, you know, we live in a time where the the language of justice has become kind of a, you know, a buzzword. You know, you talk about social justice or you're talking about justice for what we perceive as societal evils or, you know, systemic injustices or whatever like that. And, of course, the way that we always try to solve them is through some overarching... I don't know how you want to put it. Tear it all down, we'll start over, and we'll make utopia out of that. But what the, the Lord is saying here in the book of Nahum, as well as other parts of the scriptures, is not that it all needs to be torn down and we'll just start over and we'll do it ourselves, but we are waiting for that justice to come. And God will deliver that justice to us because he is great in power, even if he is waiting for a time because of his great patience. Yeah. And maybe it's it's helpful to remember that Nahum
0: prophesied before this actually happened. Okay, right. so part of the part of the difficulty we might have with celebrating the destruction of of a kingdom is on the one hand, we don't want to come off as self-righteous and say, ha ha, aren't we better than you? Um you got destroyed. Right. But it's helpful to remember Nahum preached this before the actual destruction. And I think you can see there, this this comes up again and again in the New Testament, that part of the church's mission is to actually announce to the world that idolatry and wickedness and evil is doomed, right? That these things are empty, that right. they're worthless. And if you dedicate your life to these things, like the Assyrians did to violence and, um, just the pure pursuit of power. There's also a religious component to it all right. Um, to the service right. of idols, this is, you're going to be destroyed. There's going to be, uh, you're fighting against not just earthly forces, but you're, you're fighting against the Lord and who can stand against his anger against his wrath. So right. if, if you doubt that that's part of the church's mission, then you only have to look in uh, in acts and you can see that paul is always when he goes into say take take his preaching in athens okay hopefully that's going to be well known to us he doesn't just go in there and say i see that you are very religious people good for you <laughs> right <laughs> um, he goes in and says you you are very religious but you're worshipping you're worshipping gold and silver and the true god is not something that can be made by human hands. So he has fixed a time of repentance now to turn away from these things and to serve to serve the Lord Jesus and not to serve worthless idols. That has to be part of the church's mission. You know, that's the preaching of of judgment, the preaching of the law, and if we don't do that, then we're we're just sort of giving up on that hope. Right?
1: Yeah, and I think with that too when you're dealing with the um as as you put it, the, you know, the the proclamation of the emptiness of idols and stuff like that. I think the reason why we don't do that in many cases in our own, you know, day and age is that I think we kind of assume that we're called to be just generally nice about it. Yeah. And so because we think of judgment and we think of the law as being kind of mean we don't want to be mean so we'll just kind of make it all nice and cozy and comfortable and then that's the reasons why you know we, you should come over and be a christian but uh, as you point out you know paul is saying and also the prophets are saying that's that's not what it means to proclaim god's rule to proclaim god in the face of evil we have to announce that he will overcome that there is victory in the yep. midst of all of this. And I mean, you think of the, you know, uh, we were
0: talking at the end of, of the last segment about the taunt that goes up against Nineveh. And sometimes the question will come up well, isn't that, you know, how, how could we possibly taunt our enemies? Is that right? Should the Christian even have enemies, Zelwin? Jesus <laughs> says that we should love our enemies. Um, how would it, it doesn't sound very loving to taunt them. And yeah, I'll just give me your response. And I think that's, that's worth talking about. Oh, you're going to let me answer
1: it. Okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, because what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you certainly is, you know, this desire to be loving, to show, you know, a, a, a love even towards those who hate us because as just like Jesus who loved us while we were yet his enemies. So in that sense. We are imitating what Christ himself has done. But even Christ, who, you know, loved his enemies and loved us while we were still opposed to him, even Christ had no compunction about, you know, rebuking evil or about saying, you know, what evil, you know, speaking to evil, what needed to be said. I mean, we really have confused love with niceness, I think is the way of putting it. Yeah, I, 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 as you're talking there, it,
0: you know, it's, it's one thing to say that you must love your enemies, right? And that's right, we should say that. Um, But we, but we have to recognize there that that means that you, you actually do know who your enemies are, right? That, right. So we don't want to take that to mean, that means I don't have any, I don't have any enemies. So when you look at I mean, if we just look around us right now, this will date the episode, but that's okay. I doubt anybody's you know coming back <laughs> five years from now to listen to to you know what we say about the prophet of Nahum, but if you look around the world right now and you ask yourself, what are the enemies of of the church right We want to be specific. we're not talking about any longer the enemies of of Israel right right we're talking about those who are opposed to the church you can see there's plenty of forces at work plenty of organizations you you read about you know the whole what is the the mission of black lives matter and and some of it is i suppose social justice kind of stuff that that we might not have a problem with but then mixed in with that is um you know it's going to be a queer affirming thing and it's going to un, undo the the nuclear family like those are those are not just Cultural constructs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these mm-hmm. these are things that God has built into His creation, and so this is actually opposed to to the church, to creation. It's an anti creation thing, and we have to we have to recognize that that is in conflict with the mission of the church, right? That's right. in conflict with um, the mission of God, and therefore is ultimately we want to see that be destroyed. Now, we want to see it converted, of course, right? Our hope is right. that until Christ returns, that people would actually be converted to the Lord, but then also that these things would actually be be done away with.
1: Well, and you, you mentioned some of those things, and the, the, uh, the Marxist ideas, which seem to be gaining ground in our culture again, mm-hmm you know the, the i mean the and i mean when you're dealing with marxism and again we're going to be dealing with marxist ideas probably at more length in a future episode but you know you are dealing with an idea of a salvation for man apart from god and when we have that idea of a salvation especially an economic salvation that we will somehow eliminate racism that we will somehow eliminate bigotry that we will somehow eliminate rich and poor all through these Marxist ideals, you really do have a trying to create heaven through the works of man. And when you have that going on opposed to the church, yes, that is something that is hostile, that is an enemy of the church. And so to pray for them, like you said, David, I think was quite well put. We pray for their conversion. We pray that they would come to know the truth. We pray that, you know, they would actually come to worship God and, you know, call Jesus Lord. But at the same time, that does not mean that we are praying that their plans would succeed, yeah, because right. that would mean contrary to the will of God, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. I,
0: so much uh, in there, Zellin, is is worth continuing. I, I'll be happy to tune in for that episode but recognizing <laughs> that even when you know when groups say this is not a religious uh, movement this is not <laughs> you know right. we don't we we actually rule out god to begin with it is religious at the same time right there is an eschatology like you mm-hmm. said the eschatology is heaven on earth now right and you know we will we will get rid of all these sinful things but we will do it by Im- by implementing more sin and, right, and that's that is part of the the mystery, I guess, of lawlessness that's at work there in our times now.
1: That that might open a, a huge can of worms that we don't want to get into <laughs> right now. But uh, well, we're we are coming up on the end of the episode, but I mean, th- but the point is is still true: is that when we are dealing with the enemies of the church, yes, it is good and biblical to rejoice over evil being thwarted. Yeah. And I think and I think really that's the point here. We're so afraid to acknowledge that something is evil, that is specifically evil, and that, you know, that it is opposing to the church because we want to be nice, that we see this taunt which Nahum raises over Nineveh as being somehow, you know, jerkish. Like he's yeah. why would you even do that? But the point is is that the Lord is triumphant, the Lord has overcome, the Lord is victorious evil, which seemed so strong, has become nothing. And there is something to rejoice in that, because we have been set free. The things which have threatened us, which seem so, so, you know, powerful, are actually nothing, because it is the Lord who is powerful, and the Lord who will ultimately take care of his people. Yeah, yeah, and so you, I mean, and you can even,
0: you can put this into the into terms of the individual christian struggles with right the uh the old sinful nature right but right. our hope is not that that we would just continue as simul justus et peccator forever right i want to actually be done with the sinful thing right i and and that is part of the hope that nahum puts in here that not only the enemies that are outside of us right the devil and uh, and anyone who is in league with him, but also within me, that my sinful nature, my sinful desires, uh, that those things would finally be destroyed, like that, and and someday we will be able to say, you know, there is no easing your your hurt, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not your whom has not come your unceasing evil, right when. To, to go all the way to the book of Revelation here, it would be helpful, right? When the smoke of Babylon goes up, the people don't look at that and say, "Oh, what a shame!" You know, Babylon was so great. They look at that and and rejoice that finally Babylon is destroyed.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you have a Christian, for example, who let's just let's just use an ex, just a, a hypothetical example, someone who has finally and really firmly given up drinking. You know, maybe they struggled yeah. with alcoholism, and they finally put it behind them. Do we say, "Oh well, you'll probably fall off the wagon again because you're a <laughs> sinner," <laughs> and we can't really rejoice over this because that would be works righteousness? Yeah. Or do we say, "Praise God! You know, you were gaining that self control. The, the Holy Spirit is helping put an end to this in you."
0: Yeah, that's that's great because because you're right. Sometimes we slip into that of saying, "Well, it's just you're always going to sin." right? You're just always, you just, you just resign yourself to that. And, uh, but it's, but it is true that, that sins forgiven often lead to, not always, but often lead to sin actually sent away, right? You can be delivered from these things and it's a it's, I mean,
1: praise the Lord when that happens, right? Um, Right. That's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, and, and, and so apply that again to the external enemies the external evils you know this it's exactly the same idea you know if for example the church is being oppressed by you know you know whatever let's you know you could use whatever example you want here we're not going to say if it, it finally goes away you know oh well it'll be back you know could be a lot worse <laughs> yeah a very midwest midwestern way of talking i suppose but this idea that you know it's just you just, kind of this resignation, this almost sinful resignation to sin.
0: Yeah. What if What if we put it this way, Zowin? You know, you think of how God. One of the things that we didn't really touch on here, but is comes up in Nahum, is how is God using the the unbelieving nations around us, right? Or right. because Assyria was a tool, um, if you remember in Isaiah, right? God says that He's going to whistle and summon the king of assyria to come down and uh, and shave essentially shave off the beard of israel right so so right. even before all this assyria was god's tool right it was god's instrument by by which he disciplined his people okay right. but once he he disciplines the people with assyria that discipline doesn't endure forever right the discipline is meant to produce righteousness, to produce holiness and maturity. And once it does, then the tool of discipline, God doesn't just keep beating his people forever with it, but the tool of discipline is
1: done away with. And that's what the book of Nahum brings out for us. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's an excellent point, is that, you know, all these things really do work together for good for those who love us. And, and you know to use your your favorite book, David, you know the discipline is painful while it's happening, but as you said, it produces righteousness because you know we rejoice when the evil departs from us, but recognize that God is still working all things together for good. Absolutely. Any final thoughts? I think that's a great way to, to end
0: it here. I would just, again, emphasize for people, it's a short book, Nahum. I think one of the the little commercials that we always include here is take it up and read it. What, maybe 10 minutes, right? If that one, yeah. um, <laughs> very, very quick read, um, but powerful stuff to reflect on. And especially as we as we are um, experiencing more and more, at least in America, the, the sense of that we actually do have enemies around us, that there are forces that are opposed to evil or that are opposed to to the mission of the church. It's, It's actually, it's good for that to be clarified, isn't it? It's painful, but it's good to actually see here's the reality of the situation. The spiritual warfare is all around us and we have to be alert to it.
1: And also here in Nahum, see that what our hope is. Oh, very good thank you, David. Pleasure having you on, as always. And thank you for listening. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, on facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Ellen Heidi here with David Appold. God love you, and God bless.
0: Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Nahum three eighteen to 19